The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host of the podcast. I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr., the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We have our monthly edition of Faith and Practice when Dr. Piper comes into the studio and answers questions posed by our listenership. That's you. So we thank you for the questions and Dr. Piper, I thank you for joining me once again this month. Thanks, Zach. It's always nice to be in the studio with you. You say that. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's the highlight of my uh, one Monday a month. <laughs> no, of course, that's not the only time we hang out, is it? No, it's not. We uh, we have plenty of opportunities for that, and I praise the Lord for it. We have a lot of good questions in front of us this month, but before we dive into those, I wanted to share some announcements about the seminary and, of course, pray. So let me open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have set aside this time for us to think deeply about the things of God and how those things apply to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would grant Dr. Piper much wisdom as he answers these questions, and that you would grant me much restraint, that I would allow him room to speak and to, uh, to answer the questions as fully as he can. Lord, please grant us biblical wisdom and knowledge as well as we tackle these issues, and may this be useful to your people and to your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, Before we get into the questions, I want to highlight a couple things going on here in the life of the seminary. Of course, we have our annual Spring Theology Conference starting next week. It's going from March 13th through the 15th, and of course, the day before, we have our GPTS Explore uh, open house for prospective students, and on the evening after the conference, Thursday, March 15th, we have a banquet celebrating Dr. Piper's 20 years as president and also raising much-needed funds for our scholarship fund. As part, of, uh, as part of that, we have a special announcement about scholarships. I'm going to hold back on that right now, but keep an eye on uh, the social media outlets for the seminary and our newsletter this month for a special scholarship announcement. We'll be offering a, a new scholarship from the seminary. So I'm very excited about that, and I'm trying not to, not to show my hand too much right now, but just look, look for announcements about the seminary. All of the information about the conference is available at gpts.edu slash conference, and there will also be more emails going out if you're on our distribution lists and you haven't seen emails yet. I apologize for that, but uh, we have been sending them over the last couple of weeks, and you'll see more this week. Dr. Piper, do you have anything to add? I do. Not so much to add. Let's remind the people about uh, ACE being in town. So Dr. Piper is referencing an Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals event that is taking place at the Lazy Goat in downtown Greenville. Dr. Jonathan Master of Cairn University, he's a professor there. He's also, I think, historical theology, church history. And he's also the editorial director for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, We have had graduates who have been very active with the Alliance in the past. One of our graduates 
graduates is very active as an editor with them now. And so we have a fond affection and a high regard for the Alliance. They're hosting a, a live podcast broadcast with Dr. Master down at the Lazy Goat on Monday, March 12th in the evening. If you would like more information about that, it is available on our Facebook page. It's also available on the Alliance's website, and you can send an email to me or to the seminary generally for more information. We highly recommend that if you're going to be in town. Zach, why aren't we doing my podcast at the Lazy Goat? I don't know. I think probably because they don't allow for certain things that maybe you would want to have allowed for. But I guess we can't do that in my office either, right? (laughs) Yeah, we can. (laughs) Um, The other thing I'd want to start reminding people now is the uh, Summer Institute. We do this uh, four and a half days, four four full days every August. It's going to be a week earlier this year in July. Addressing issues particularly designated for uh, office bearers in the church, when I came here, people wanted me to do a demon program in preaching, but my um, experience there thought that men really didn't have enough time to work on the fundamentals. And so we started this uh, continuing education program. And we've had great, great programs over the 19 years now that we've been doing this. And I'm very excited about the one uh, this summer. I think it's the last week in July. But um, Kevin Backus. And George Scipione, two of the leading biblical counselors in the world, I would say, uh, and also experts on family. In fact, Dr. Scipione, I'm right now uh, reading a book of his to write a recommendation, uh, Theology of the Christian Family, um, are going to do a conference on a a family and marriage, uh, sex uh, abuse problems, just some really important issues. So put it on your calendar now. Is that the right week, Zach? I believe so. I think it's uh, the week of July 22nd or 23rd, whatever that is. And from what I remember about the course, it's not just tackling the crisis, the crises as well. and family uh, family counseling, but also positive things like premarital counseling or, you know, how to, you know, just raise your children in the Lord yeah. and, and, and do so biblically. Dr. Backus and Dr. Scipione are both um, just mighty men of God in this area, and I, I would recommend it as well. And it's more than a conference. I mean, it's an intensive class. Well, it's, You're it's spending... Say, it's continuing ed. You can get a ed certificate. Yep. Which... It's a shame that presbyteries don't require that. Most other professional uh, groups do require continuing ed. Teachers and lawyers, doctors, not ministers. Ministers might not make enough money to afford continuing education. We don't charge a lot of money. That's true. We don't charge a lot of money for our continuing ed. Plus, really, churches should be paying for it as yeah. well. And and we do, um, speaking about cost, we do seek to help with lodging for men who, who need assistance in that regard. We find host families that are more than happy to have you stay with them during the week while you're you know pursuing uh, this strengthening in in your own pastoral practice i guess and we still have some host at least i know of one host family available next week for the conference we do we do we have a couple and so if you have yet to register for the conference i recommend that you do so www.gpts.edu slash conference hopefully that's straightforward enough for you we have a 
a generally large number of registrants so far. Yeah, it's one of our largest conferences so far, so we're looking forward to next week. All right. Well, with that, we can dive into our questions. We have one that's been hanging out on our list for a little while because it has required some research. And this comes from Ladong Lando of Las Piñas City, Philippines. And Ladong asks, what is the neo-Orthodox view of covenant theology, and how does it differ with the classic Reformed view? Well, Ladong, uh, a little bit of checking I've done to confirm what I thought. If we take neo-Orthodox, we take Karl Barth, kind of the, the uh, quote, Reformed, unquote, uh, neo-Orthodox theologian, uh, he really doesn't have a view of the covenant theology. He his theology all focuses on Christ in covenant. He didn't have a covenant of works. And the covenant basically is with all men, all mankind. And that's where he gets into his universalism. So Christ is the elect. All mankind then are elected in Christ and are then in this covenant with God. So he's basically a universalist and would not really work out of the scriptures in terms of uh, the progressive unfolding of covenant administrations. Now, admittedly, that's weak, and I'll yet do some more uh, work as I have time. I just didn't have time to research it the way your question deserves, but I will do a bit more as well. Since I have to teach covenants in the fall, I was reminded by your question of a uh, lacunae in my uh, lectures that I'll need to address. Very good. Thank you for the question. And Dr. Pipe, for our listeners who aren't as familiar, in a nutshell, what is neo-Orthodox theology, so-called. You've already connected it to Karl Barth and his Christomonism, right, his, his emphasis on Christ as all. But uh, wh- wh- how would you define neo-Orthodox theology? Well, um, Barth, uh, who went through the liberal uh, theological education system in Germany, uh, World War II kind, or one did him in, he recognized that liberalism had no answer, so he supposedly returned to an orthodoxy. <coughs> and uh, so it was a move back from liberalism, but the reason it's neo-orthodoxy is that in the really essential positions of biblical inerrancy, Bart did not make it back. So Bart said that the Bible contains the Word of God, and when you read the Bible— And God speaks to you through the Bible. It becomes in that process the living word of God. He uh, then out of that, of course, developed uh, a view of a kind of super history of things that God has done, uh, not in in real time. He, uh, as we've said, was very not just Christ-centered, but uh, what's the phrase Zach used? Christomonic monism. Uh, and everything is in Christ, elections in Christ, and ends up with the universalism. He also, it's been exposed in the last few months, had a concubine. So the neo-Orthodoxy is a bit shallow at this point. It was well known in the culture, his family. She lived in the home. Uh, and uh, so it uh, doesn't take away the fact that there's things we can learn from a person. Calvin said, uh, uh, you know, embrace the truth wherever you find it. There are things in part that can be very useful. But uh, 
On the other hand, a tree is known by its fruits. And uh, if a theology can allow for that kind of, uh, of lifestyle. You know, it used to be that even Europeans would say that Bart was an evangelical. And that his personal faith, now I would have said this before, uh, seemed to be Christ-centered. But now with these things that Germany's known forever, it's just becoming apparent over here. Um, I don't think any of us, whether, I mean, we also know the case a few months ago of a very uh, active experimental Calvinist. So uh, the heart's also known by its fruits. And uh, if a man is living uh, for a long period of time, I'm not talking about falling into sin. Uh, The best of men can fall prey to the worst of sins. But when a man begins to live in that sin and the subterfuge, or in his case, there was no subterfuge, deceit. Um, So uh, at that point, then, uh, Christ says, Depart from that ever knew you, you workers of iniquity. So it's not my job to put anybody in heaven or hell. But as we make judgments, a proper biblical kind of judgment, by their fruits you shall know them, that gives great pause. And But at the end of the day, we come back to ourselves. Uh, I must guard my heart. Zach must guard his heart. Every one of you must guard your hearts. We must uh, be very careful at uh, putting off sin and growing in sanctification. And at the end of the day, any evaluation of neo-orthodoxy as such is is going to be done on doctrinal grounds. Um, because like Dr. Pipe has said, even um, men whom we have regarded as great stalwarts of the Reformed faith have shown themselves to have been enslaved by uh, by persisting and persistent just debauchery and depravity and sin. And so sometimes men do not reflect the systems to which they subscribe. But in Karl Barth's case, um, you have shortcomings on both ends, I think, theological and then in terms of personal piety. And he was Swiss-German, right? He was in, was he Geneva or Bern or where was he? Geneva would be French. Oh, okay. Bern or Basel. Basel. Basel, Basel is that where he was, yeah. Well, if you want to learn more about Bart, you could always go to Princeton Theological Seminary. They're really uh, they're really into him up there. <laughs> that was me being snarky. Dr. Piper told me. This is your snarky days, Zach. Yeah, he told me I was in a, a snarky mood earlier. And I didn't really think I was being that snarky, but I've embraced it, at least <laughs> this afternoon. All right, our next question comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. And Lucas asks uh, this question. Acts 16, 6 through 10 says that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia. Then in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, Paul is said to have wanted to visit Thessalonica. However, Satan hindered his group from coming. So my question is this, how can we distinguish when God has a different plan for us and we must change our mind and follow God's plan? And when Satan is fighting against us, and because of that, we should fight back, pray, and ask God's help to accomplish our aim. Thank you, Lucas. Um, your question reminds me of a question reportedly that uh, uh, Schaefer asked uh, his good friend, uh, Dr. Coop, as Schaefer was dying of cancer, and uh, Schaefer was uh, uh, saying, you know, I just uh, don't know why Satan has been allowed to do this to me. And Coop says, well, I don't know why God's doing this to you. <laughs> And they both were right. And, of course, we, we go back to Job. I love the book of Job, and it really helps with these types of problems. Uh, 
Uh, it was God's eternal plan, good pleasure, uh, that Job go through these trials and afflictions. God used Satan as the tempter and enticer, also exercising authority in the natural elements as well as in the hearts of wicked people, even well-meaning, believing people like Job's counselors. And so in these acts, there are often going to be um, parallel, so to speak, activity. The theological term for that is concursus. I gave a paper at our conference two years ago on that, which you can hear that lecture online. But um, so we start with trying to discern God's will. Now, in the first place, we recognize that Paul, as an apostle, had direct guidance by the Holy Spirit of where God wanted the word ministered and when. So God, at this point, had prepared um, Achaia and Macedonia uh, for the gospel entrance, and God wasn't ready for the gospel to come to Asia. Paul would go back, and he would spend his longest period of time, if I remember correctly, in Ephesus, uh, two years. Um, so this, with the apostles, um, they have they had special guidance in terms of their missionary strategy. When uh, Paul is seeking to do something that is f- consistent with God's will and word, and hindrances are thrown up against him, then he recognizes the wiles of Satan and the demons in doing that. So on the one hand, for us, we discern God's will first through revelation. If anything that we're seeking to do is uh, part of a clear commandment of God, then we press on, to use your language, um, uh, fight back, pray, ask God's help to accomplish our aim. So let's take a, a concrete example. A Christian man married to a professing Christian woman. She begins to clamor for a divorce with no biblical grounds. He knows it's God's will that they not divorce. He then will labor according to God's revealed will to save the marriage. If there's repentance needed in this part, if there's counseling changes or whatever, he's not going to give in. He's going to fight. He's going to pray. He's going to love her sacrificially. She persists in an unbiblical divorce. Then she has acted according to a hard heart seduced by Satan. Now, at the end of the day, we know that God who foreordains all that comes to pass ordained that, and it will be for the husband's good because God promised that. All things are together for good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So we judge in our life's battles that this is consistent with God's word. Now, Let's take another example. So Mary has an unconverted sister, and Mary has a burden for her sister, and she wants to try to witness, and she shares the gospel with her sister. But her sister says, don't ever talk to me again about your Christ. Well, that's of Satan, but Mary should not fight back at that point outside of prayer because we respect that all people are the images of God, even a broken image And so we do not have the right to force the gospel down someone's throat. Now, we never stop praying when we're thwarted by Satan. 
Uh, and so, because we don't know when God will overthrow a particular cause of Satan. So we pray to our dying breath. We act according to God's revealed will. Uh, and in these things, we'll recognize when evil prevails that Satan has won the little battle, but God's winning the big battle. One other illustration where you act by God's will. You perhaps have heard of William Tyndale, who had a great burden to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the English language because the people did not have the English Bible. But that was outlawed in England, and so he lived on the continent, and he was actually a nice little novel written about him called God's Outlaw. He was a wanted man, and he would go from post to pillar, translating Scripture, he had printers he worked with in a number of European, particularly the coastal cities, and then the British merchants, the traders, who would sail between places like Antwerp and London, would carry, smuggle his Bibles into uh, England. So he, had, he was constantly being harried, and he got word that uh, the authorities are going to be on him in a few minutes. So he goes to his printer, and he grabs up all of the uh, proofs of his translation now of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He flees with him. He gets away. He's on a ship, and the ship sank. He lost all of that work. Now, I use a Bible reading program, but I read through the Old Testament once a year. It's now into our third month of the year, and I'm in Exodus. So it takes almost six months of the year just to read through those five books in my language. So you can imagine how long it took him to translate. Now, what does Mr. Tyndale decide? God must not have wanted me to translate the, those books into English because of the storm. No, he knew from the Bible that the Bible should be in the language of the people. So even though that was Satan's attack and he was thwarted, he went right back to his work and retranslated the Pentateuch. So that's kind of how we deal with those tensions, Lucas. And I've always thought that Tyndale was able to translate those five books again a much quicker the second yes, time. Yes, of course. <laughs> At least I hope so. Still not easy. <clears throat> no, it's not. Maybe you're such a Greek scholar. No, scholar. no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm i always uh, left slack-jawed whenever I consider the great works of the men who have come before us, Dr. Piper in their day and age without modern amenities and all the tools we have and, and medicine and everything else. Very good. Well, thank you, and Lucas. And all the distractions either, like Facebook it's and true. Twitter and all that junk. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And somebody did tell me that they would have had a lot more help at home and their wives would have had a lot more help at home mm-hmm. with extended family and for they, most of these men's servants. Secretaries and they were dictating yeah. to and things. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. But um, still... Well, I want Remarkable. To, it is. It really is. I want to tackle the, the second question from Lucas because we're not really in a rush today with the questions that we have. But Lucas asks as well, on an earlier podcast, there was a question about self-defense, and I asked myself, what about a soldier? I agree that a soldier can defend his country, family, friends, and citizens. This is his duty. But what if his country engages in an unjust war, a war that doesn't intend to protect, defend, or help someone? a war that there are bad interests involved, can he disobey his authorities and decline to participate in such a war? Uh, Yes, Lucas, not only may he, but he should. I was just reading a little on the history today thing about um, 
uh, a pastor in uh, Hitler, Germany. He was one of the few state church pastors that preached against the Third Reich, was put in prison, got out, and immediately they put him in concentration camp. And so he spent the entire war uh, imprisoned. But there weren't a lot of people like that even in the ministry. Uh, so the same would have been true for a soldier, even though the consequences could be dire. We, at that point, we have to say with Peter, do I obey God or men? Now, man needs to be sure uh, that it's an unjust war. Of course, the way we think about uh, an aggressor co- country that is uh, pillaging, raping, trying to take territory that belongs to others. It's not that all preemptive war is wrong. I think in today's um, uh, situation, particularly with atomic weapons, preemptive strikes might be the best self-defense uh, that we have. But if, it's, uh, if the war is not a just war, then a man has to be a conscientious objector. In our country or in, in the West, Canada, Britain, you can do that. I'm sure you can't do that in uh, a lot of totalitarian countries. So that might mean you get shot or go to jail. Uh, but at that point, uh, that you're dying for the cause of the gospel. So um, the first I know of writer to deal with just war was uh, Augustine in the City of God. He put out a number of uh, important principles uh uh, the purpose of the war is it winnable um, you go in it to win you don't drag it out the way our country dragged out uh, Vietnam um, in particular um, but no it would come to a point where I think that um, if I would have to tell my grandsons that this is an evil war and you know, get out of the country um, or whatever um, if you can't get conscientious objector. What makes a war just or unjust? And how can an individual man uh, come I mean, up with he that? He's counseled by his church as well. But there you, you know, go. There are objective things. That, yeah, it can't be my individual. Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for the questions, Lucas. This next question is from an anonymous listener. And uh, this listener asks, is it wrong to have a crush on an unbeliever? I'm not talking about a celebrity crush, but a romantic attraction desiring relationship with someone personally known. You know, I think it is anonymous uh, for the reason that a crush means that there's already one level of emotional uh, involvement. And so the slightest uh, encouragement from the object of the crush is only going to intensify uh, the desires on that first uh, level. You've already said it was romantic attraction. We're just reading uh, in Second Corinthians that we're not to be unequally yoked. And we also, right before that, he talks about, or right after that, he talks about coming out from among them. Right, yeah, right after that in chapter 6. Come out from among them. Um, do not be defiled by them. Um, and so you shouldn't even be uh, particularly uh, in any type of of one-on-one friendship with a the person of an opposite sex who is not converted and is a godly man or, or woman. And so 
um, cut it off early on um, and ask God to uh, discipline your affections uh, in terms of that. This is also why I think it's very important. Now, you might be coming from a non-Christian home, our home which your father is um, missing in action. Uh, but this is why all you young ladies listening, and I don't know that Anonymous is a lady, by the way, uh, why, you anonym, uh, why you young ladies need to consult with your fathers. If you have godly fathers, they are your protectors. And so you have this discussion with them. So, you know, I'm attracted to John. And Dad will say, well, John's not converted, and you just need to stay away from him. And uh, we'll pray for John's conversion. I'm glad to do that. But uh, no, uh, don't put yourself in a position to be tempted. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, as we are rushing in to expose ourselves to temptation. So the mortific- part of the mortification of the flesh, putting that remnant of sin in us to death, is avoiding the occasions that will tempt us. And so walk carefully, Anonymous. Watch over the heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23, I think even worldly wisdom uh, puts it this way, you know, you someone that's constantly falling for other people and, and crushing on them or whatever is said to wear his or her heart on their sleeves. And there's something to be said about that. You're giving your heart away to someone, whether they take it or not, is another matter entirely. But you want to, you know, watch over your heart in that. But that's a good question. I think that's an important question. Thank you for submitting it. Our next question is also submitted by an anonymous listener. It's a little less dicey, but no less important. Is it profitable generally for lay people to study secular philosophy? How would you advise or caution a Christian student who wants to study philosophy at a secular college or university? Why not just double down on studying scripture since God says it provides all we need for life and godliness? Thank you, Anonymous. Uh, Let's begin with the end of your question. Um, literature, would you just study the Bible because it's all you need for life and godliness? History, uh, farming, medicine, uh, no. Um, we build our view of any subject matter from Scripture. And so when we talk about having what we call a worldview, we have a platform that is the Bible alone, and we have a fence. So let's take Generally speaking, before we get to philosophy, we'll take science. So the Bible is not a textbook on science, but when the Bible tells us that God created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days was all very good, that's where a Christian who wants to do good science is going to begin. He's not going to go down the pathway of um, uh, evolution or of um, uh, old earth or geological theories that posit billions of years no, he's got a biblical record to set him off. And then he begins as, as intelligent scientists to look at are there, are there theories that explain what we can observe now, either in uh, a geological record or in the animal world um, or in the cosmic world that are scientifically valid. We can never assert it's how it happened. So we don't know how light a billion light years away got on earth on the day of creation if it did but it whoever those stars were however how many hundreds of thousands of light years away they were 
God created them to be seen because he tells us he created the host. Uh, And so there are some very nice scientifically reputable theories about light, the beginning of light. For me, I'm simple-minded, and so I simply say God created the star with its pathway just as he treated a tree-bearing fruit. It didn't take 20 years to be a mature tree. It was made a mature tree. If you cut it down, it would have had rings, and so the star would have its um, pathway of light. So we start there. Now, to do that, for a Christian to go to the university or a college and study science, he better have a very good foundation because his faith is going to be bombarded uh, in that uh, secular atmosphere. Now, does the church need men trained in philosophy? Well, I think we do. I think that uh, uh, there are uh, we we need men and women who can answer uh, modern philosophy. We need people who can help us understand the trends of culture uh, that are coming out of because wherever the classroom is today, the culture will be in ten years or whatever. Uh, these things don't hash out overnight. Uh, and then the training of the mind, the whole use of uh, of the good things, the questions that philosophy asks. That philosophy can't answer questions about metaphysics. That means what reality is, or ethics. But philosophy can't answer questions uh, about um, how we think, uh, how we communicate, uh, and, and what. What theories though were offered in these other areas as well? It's very useful to know what a, a scientist said about um, being or metaphysics. So, it's interesting to know that uh, the Plato, who believed in eternal matter, also believed that there was a moment of creation of time and matter. Um, so, uh, if the person has the mental gifts to do philosophy. Uh, and believe that the guy's calling them to pursue philosophy as a Christian, then that's what he ought to do. Now, where he does it uh, is going to be uh, a story, again, dependent upon his circumstances and his gifts and abilities. If he's really, really well-grounded and well-read, then he can go to the secular university and be sharpened there to interact with uh, worldly thinking. If he's a bit more of a novice, then he'd be better off going to a faithful um, Christian liberal arts college. Uh, Not many of those left, but um, to go to a faithful liberal arts, Christian liberal arts college and study philosophy uh, in that context. But it's not wrong uh, for a Christian to pursue that. And in fact, a liberal arts degree with philosophy, that's kind of up there with um, literature or history. Um, it will just teach you to think because you'll see how the world has approached all of these things. And I'm a big fan, and I was uh, there was a great article. All, all of y'all, I encourage you to look it up uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think it was Saturday about uh, the importance of a liberal arts education, not using college or university for job training. Uh, and my counsel is always to um, Christian young people get a liberal degree. You know, in the tech areas, you go major in computer science. The time you graduate, half of what you learned will be already passe. If a company knows you've been trained to think, you know the rudiments of computer uh, science, 
they can train you to do whatever they want. My daughter's a good example of that. She had a liberal arts major. She went to work for a company as a proofreader, and within a year they had her writing programs because she could think. So um, I like it when I get a ministerial candidate who's had a, a philosophy degree because I know that he knows how to think, he can reason, he can deal with abstract issues. And so it's right up there in my book with history or uh, literature as a, a major that is useful for a man pursuing the ministry. Now, the one caveat I add about not being job school, the way things are today with some of our homeschoolers that uh, going through curriculums like the Veritas curriculum, they can be liberally educated. They can already have their Latin and Greek by the time they're seniors in high school. And if they've got that liberal education, then they can go on and uh, do a more uh, particular major at the college university level. For what it's worth, I'm, I did three minors in undergrad, and one of them was philosophy, and it was the only one that I did all 18 credits in the classroom. And it was in a philosophy course on uh, determinism, free will, and moral responsibility that I figured out that <clears throat> what I believed the Bible was saying placed me within the Reformed tradition because I was exposed well, so to bad you, thinking. You just had a question about just war. Mm-hmm. It's in a good philosophy department. You're going to wrestle with those questions. Yeah. Uh, what are the principles of just war? And you can evaluate those by Scripture. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, many, many moments in those philosophy courses where I just thought, this is total nonsense. I can't believe that people actually think this way and believe it. And that's not to say that the only thing valuable about 18 hours of philosophy is you get to see all the ridiculousness out there. But there's some something to be said that when you study philosophy, you learn how to frame an argumentum ad absurdum, <laughs> where you can make an argument to the absurd to show just how um, insane some of what the world holds to be true is once it fleshes out into practice. Anyway, thank you for the question. It's a very thoughtful one. Pun intended. Get it, oh, Dr. Uh, Piper? Oh, I got it. All right. I got it. You know, uh, a couple of uh, ads here. One is, uh, for your Christian to a finishing high school, a uh, good friend of ours, chairman of our board at the seminary, Jeff Kingswood pastors an associate reform Presbyterian church in Woodstock, Canada, and they have a one-year transition program um, between high school and the university college level. It's called Gillespie Center, and they get into thinking, worldview, stuff like that. And there's two or three others like that in the states, um, and so then connected with that to put in another unabashed argument is that if you don't know about the basic Christian worldview conference, like I always get those letters out of order. Biblical. Biblical. <coughs> worldview student, student conference. Adam Alsage. BWSC. Anyway, yeah. uh, this is a great conference. I've spoken for them twice now. Uh, and uh, only send teenagers that are serious about learning because you don't play until nighttime. Uh, you go through... Uh, nine or ten hours of classes and then a, a sermon at night. Uh, but it's a great place to have the minds of your best teenagers stretched. It's also a great place to meet godly men and women. A number of marriages have come out of these uh, conferences as well. So they just wrote me today, and uh, they need counselors, um, and they need students 15 years old and upward. I hope my granddaughter gets to go this year. 
So um, put that, and you can contact us at the seminary, and we will send you the information for them. They'll also be exhibiting at our conference next week. They'll have a table, and the Baileys who put on this conference, as well as their pastor, their church will all be at the conference, and you'll be able to speak with them if, if right. you'll be at the and conference. Um, Dr. Bailey's on our board as well. And then um, connected with that, just something to pray about for the seminary. One of my dreams, long-term goals would be to have actually a liberal arts prep school so that a student could go to a two-year junior college technical school or whatever and then come here to Greenville Seminary and do a liberal arts degree particularly men that wanted to go into the ministry. So we would have men training for the ministry that already had their Latin, their Greek, their Hebrew, their logic and philosophy out of the way. Yeah, we have that in in seed form with the propedeutic year that we have here as part of our program. So if you or your uncle's got a few hundred thousand dollars, send them on to us, please. Dr. Piper just asked if you have a rich uncle. <laughs> you are your uncle. <laughs> The next question comes from Virginia Canuto of Aracaju, Brazil, and she asks, In your opinion, how are ministry and teaching made more difficult by being in a culturally Christian country, specifically by being in the Bible Belt area of the United States? Thank you, Virginia. I take an opposite view of that than most people. I think it's wonderful to minister in a place like the Bible Belt. Uh, Yes, we have a lot of nominal Christians here. But you know, in Brazil, you got all these ex-Roman, all these Roman Catholics that think they're converted as well. And we all have, uh, still in these cultures, the need in the first place to help a person understand they're not converted. Um, the, the thing I like about, well, the first place is it's a civil place to live. I go out to eat. I'm not the only one praying over my meal. I'm looking around. I, I think I never go out to eat, Virginia, and I don't see... Um, a couple or a couple of women and men or a family praying before they eat. And that is so encouraging to a Christian. Uh, a second uh, encouragement is it's very easy then to engage people in conversation about spiritual things because I don't have to uh, ask them, wonder what they're going to think of asking them if they go to church. I was talking to a man this morning at the gym. The other day I saw him carrying his uh, one of his boys. I said, and I've been praying about it. So I said, DJ, you um, you getting those boys in church? He said, well, yeah, they went to such and such a church. I said, well, now, DJ, did you take them to church? And he's a fitness guy. I played pro football for a while and has a program there. The, I said, remember what the Bible says, what is a prophet, a man, the game? And he finished the verse. His father was a pastor. And I said, are you going to church yourself? And he said, Yes. So this builds a foundation now for future conversations. Now, there'll be a lot of places in my own country that that just would have been so far out of the blue that it would be impossible. So I think we live in the Bible Belt. Yeah, we have to put up with a nominal Christianity, but what we have is a context where we can talk openly in public. I witnessed probably to nine out of ten times to the waiter or waitresses now, I say witness. I'll talk to them about their life, where they're going to church, what's going on. I invite them to church. Um, I do that any place I would habituate regularly. And uh, so, and then we just got the fact that we don't have to put up as much grossness. You know, um, it's, it's changing. And, and our country is changing, but we still have a much uh, more of the shadow of godliness in the South 
than other parts of the United States and in most other countries of the world. I can remember my first trip to Britain back in 1976, 77, and all of the half-pornographic billboards in the tube station and I I said I've been to the future and it's not pretty um, and you know what it's like in Brazil Virginia we don't have that here I don't have to worry in, in the south driving down the street and seeing a three-fourths naked woman on a billboard uh, and so uh, there's no better place to raise children than the south so again I'll make another unabashed unsh- a shameless advertisement you men that want to go to the ministry you come here. You'll be in a, a much safer culture. We'll prepare you to go out into the world, and you can raise your children here very comfortably as well. For what it's worth, I grew up in a great northern city and was raising my children there, and my wife and I have been nothing but nothing short of absolutely thrilled with being down here. It's much more family-friendly in so many ways. I mean, the downtown area is more accessible. There's more parks. I mean, not just in terms of public morality, what Dr. Pipe was talking about, though that's certainly a major factor, but just in terms of how things are set up. It's much more family and church-oriented culture, um, which makes a big difference. So I would not be opposed to ministering back where I'm from, but I'm very glad that I'm preparing for ministry down here. What we want to do is prepare you to send you out. Yeah. So uh, we don't want all the people to stay here, uh, but we give you a safe environment to prepare for ministry, and then send you to the wolves. Yep. Dr. Pipe is looking forward to sending me to the wolves. Our next question you know comes... what a diploma from Geneva was called? What? Oh, it was a death certificate a death or something? Certificate. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's... It's oh. not quite that way at Greenville yet. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right, our next question comes from Brett Waldrip of Tuscumbia, Alabama, and Brett asks this. I've been considering lately the common practice of many churches to pay nursery workers... Would having a church nursery be a work of necessity? If it is a necessity to have a nursery, is it a necessity to hire people to do the job? For instance, eating is a necessity, so it is acceptable to prepare a meal for my family. However, I would not view it as acceptable to pay someone to prepare a meal for me, like eating out at a restaurant. Is there a difference between the two? Very thoughtful question, Brett, and I appreciate it. Let's take the middle part. Is a nursery a necessity? If you want your church to be able to reach the lost and the weak Christian, the answer to that question is yes. A church, a nursery is a necessity in a church. Now, I say that as one who believes that our littlest children should be in worship. I also am one who believes that uh, there's a growth development uh, spurt that takes place between 6 and 12 to 18 months when a child is naturally uh, active and loud, not loud, obnoxiously, but just making noises. And so that's the one time, if a church doesn't have a cry room, that I would encourage the family for their own ability to profit from worship and from those around them that you put your child in that nursery. So for the believing community, six, um, six to uh, a year, Six months. Six months to a year uh, would be the time to use the nursery. So I'm very keen on having children in the worship service, training them for that. And when we have cry rooms, that's also very good. Now, I have uh, Joe and Jane show up to visit my church, and they've been down 
the street at the um, uh, Evangelical Church of the Rising Sun, and they um, have children's church there. And uh, they have a very uh, man-centered service. And so Jane and Joe come to my church, and they don't get entertained, and they have to keep their children in there with them. They're not going to come back next week. It was just a very bad experience for them because if it had just been the service was different, well, okay, if the Spirit's working. But then they have to worry about our children have to be in here with us and they got to worry about their children. And so if a church really is outward looking, now I'm talking, that's a Christian family. And you get a non-Christian family, and it's even more serious. So if a church is really going to be outward looking, then a nursery is a necessity. But it is a ministry. And just as our churches throw so much money at youth workers and music directors and all these things, I think we are depriving God's people of the opportunity of serving the body of Christ and the outreach program of the church by paying nursery workers. Now, Zach and I are at a fairly large PCA church. They train all the people in the church. So to work in nursery, you you have to actually go through now the sex abuse training and all that stuff. Fully staffed nursery, I think, most of our churches in this area do the same thing. Uh, and as God's people, you, you have a rotation, and nobody is doing it, you know, in our church, just, you know, real often. Now, in a small church, this might happen once a month, morning or evening. But it's a ministry. And so uh, there's two problems, then, if you pay the nursery work in the first place. It's probably not because it's taking that person out of church. Um and probably not then necessary because then you're depriving God's people as well of an opportunity to minister. So now I'll agree that this can be a judgment call. And just as some churches have to pay a musician, I'd be careful if you do that, that that musician is a, a bona fide Christian who has been approved by his church or her church. But um, I think our church does pay our musicians, but the musicians are in the worship service. And uh, they're worthy of their hire in the same way that, uh, not to the same amount, but as a, a minister would be or something like that. So um, the, the nursery worker is kept out of the worship service. They're there every week, rather as the volunteer is there uh, every so many weeks. Uh, so I just think it's a, a thing not to do. But if that's the decision a session makes and they've thought it through, this we think is a necessity for our church, then I'm. Uh, it's not where I'm going to rant and yell. Thank you for the question, Brett. <clears throat> our next question comes from Michigan. Another ecclesiastical question here. I've been noticing Presbyterian Church websites promoting a non-denominational approach to Lord's Day worship as well as statements of faith which claim that, quote, for this particular congregation or network of congregations, elders have amended and changed the Westminster Confession of Faith to fit the current sociological environment and needs of the people, end quote. My question is this. How can the independent congregational level amending of the denominational doctrinal standards be acceptable 
does it not warrant discipline from the denomination as a whole? Make it clear for our hearers, this is not an independent congregation. They're acting uh, at an independent level as congregationalists. So, no, they may not do that. And if you know of such a situation, you need to alert uh, faithful elders uh, so that uh, uh, sessions can begin to interact with uh, sessions. It's. I was, where was I? I was in Tyler, Texas a few weeks ago, and I got sent a, a, a website link from the pastor about a PCA church uh, in uh, Georgia. That's just specific as I'll get, that um, has elders and a council of women and deacons. And the council of women are doing almost everything the elders are doing, simply not called elders. Uh, that's the kind. Oh, and that, that, that church also, the session hires the minister, really contrary to the Book of Church order. Uh, which means that session can fire the minister. So they as, only have an assistant pastor, according to our VCO? They, no, he's... So he they only have an assistant pastor, according to our VCO? They don't have that Very top-down, isn't it? So anyway... How does that work? Um, so that's, you know... Yeah. So anyway... I don't have time to go out and look at these websites, but I think when people are alerted to this stuff, particularly sessions that are in the same city or presbytery... It must begin there. And as long as we keep allowing our PCA churches to be antinomian when it comes to their confessionalism and the standards of the church, then we're going to continue to weaken uh, uh, the PCA. So uh, it is wrong, and it does warrant discipline. Now, for that to happen... uh, it has to begin at a presbytery level. Discipline cannot come again from the general assembly. Now, if it's a presby- if it's a church, uh, and the presbytery is not dealing with it, then we do have means of asking the general assembly to take it over, and we've exercised that in the past. Doctor Smith and I did that, and you get two churches to petition the general assembly from two different presbyteries. Uh, to take original jurisdiction of a church because um, its presbytery is not exercising discipline. So there are steps in our book of church order we can go through. You know, I know that people are tired. I'm tired. I'm at a seminary, uh, and I don't think that, you know, uh, I think it has to be churches. If in my presbytery there was such a church, then uh, I would be I would be involved. Um, and I will be involved if uh, people in that local press trade try discipline and it doesn't, uh, the, the, the local church or presbytery refuses to do discipline, then I'd be glad to join in with those. But it has to take place in the presbytery at first, I think, uh, and people that are firsthand witnesses of what's going on. So um, don't give up on this issue, please. And it is wrong, and it does warrant church discipline. Thank you, Dr. Piper. This question comes from Elder Gideon Ng of Pilgrim Covenant Church in Singapore. And Gideon asks, how should pastors publicly address those gathered during the funeral sermon of a church member who committed suicide? He provides some background outlining the two schools of thought 
that uh, that someone could appeal to and trying to determine how best to handle this kind of situation. But Dr. Piper, without going into those details, you know, can you answer the question, how can pastors best strike a balance here? Well, I think that we do have to point out that suicide is not the unpardonable sin. That would be a denial of justification by faith alone. Uh, all of us are going to die with unconfessed sin unless our consciences get perfect quickly before we die. Uh, and so, yes, a, a person commits suicide, dies with unconfessed sin. They died in the, an act of self-murder. But there are extenuating circumstances that lead to this. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, the depression, despair, uh, uh, medication, illnesses, extreme pain, uh, there are a lot of factors that go into that. So if a person has had... Uh, a faithful testimony to the Lord and uh, commits suicide, then I want to make clear in the funeral service that this is not an unpardonable sin and that I, as best as men can judge as a church, this person is, in fact, uh, died as a Christian and is uh, with the Lord in heaven. I don't think that blesses suicide as an express ticket to heaven. Uh, We could say that suicide is a sin, and it's a serious sin. It's very selfish and self-centered, regardless of the motivations. Um, I'm not sure at a funeral service that's the place to do that, though. You're there to comfort the family of a person whom you believe and they hope, or you both hope, was in Christ And so I would, in sermons apart from the funeral, um, deal with um, the nature of suicide in a broader way. But at the funeral of a Christian, I think that I would uh, say that this does not, not the unpardonable sin, this person can be a Christian and have uh, committed this sin. Uh, we do encourage you, if you're ever coming to that point, to reach out, uh, not just in prayer to the Lord, but to those around you to, to seek help. I tell you, there is a, a sermon you can go online and listen to by Rick Phillips. A few years ago, uh, he preached a, an amazing sermon of, of, for a man that, in the church that committed suicide. And I don't remember the date of that sermon on sermon audio, but uh, I was at the service, if I remember correctly, and I thought it was very balanced. All right. Well, Dr. Piper, thank you for your time, and thank you to all our listeners for your questions. We will pick up next month on the first Monday of the month at 2.30. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.